musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to get to listen to another talk from the Planque Norte Lecture Series that was held at this year's Burning Man Festival. And this talk features the artist, experimental filmmaker, micro-publisher, and media developer, Ken Adams. As you know, for uh, many years, Ken was a close friend and neighbor of Terrence McKenna, whose talks we've been listening to here for the uh, past several weeks, actually the past several years. And uh, as you may recall, previously we featured a talk by Ken in which he described the making of his recent movie, The Terrence McKenna Experience. And I'm pleased to tell you that you can now download your own copy of this extremely creative look at the mind of Terrence McKenna as a pay-what-you-can download. And uh, I'll post a link to that download site with the uh, program notes to today's podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And now, let's uh, join Pez on the playa as he introduces Ken Adams. All right, so we're going to get started with Mr. Ken Adams here. Just wanted to introduce Ken first to you guys. Uh, Ken is a mixed-media psychedelic artist. He also made a awesome film, from what I hear. I'm really looking forward to seeing it tonight. About Terrence, which is going to scream Terrence McKenna, which is going to screen at 2 a.m. tonight, uh, right after T. Ferry speaks. So. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing his talk tonight. And uh, without further ado, here's Ken Adams, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Um, it's a busy night. I want to start off thanking a bunch of people because I think it's important both for the etiquette of it, but also that we begin to develop an appreciation for the ancestors of this neo-psychedelic transformation we're all part of. So you'll hear me mentioning a lot of names of people that I admire and love very much tonight. And I want to start off by thanking Pachamama for bringing me here and giving me a chance to be on the playa. I'm dearly grateful. I also want to thank the Burning community for giving me a place to do this. To be in this scene is an incredible blessing for us all and in particular for me. It's been incredible and I thank you. And I also want to say something to the Palenque Norte community that extends all over the internet because there's a tradition developing here that's really astonishing. And there are people here that are here tonight, Bruce Damer, Pateo's here. There's all these people in spirit, Lorenzo's watching and going to hear. Tom Rydell is uh, missing, but he set up all this technology for us and... uh, gave lots of love at the right time so there's a lot of people that go into all this stuff and there's a lot of people in doing like 40 years of psychedelic research and uh, experimentation and stuff so I'm going to try to remember to pay a lot of extra respect to the ancestors tonight I think it's really important that we learn to extend our narratives beyond our personal stories and see that we're all part of something very important 
and that we're all, everybody in this room is an extraordinary human being or they wouldn't be here. And you're bringing something very unique to the planet that's urgent right now to be here. So I want to thank all of you for doing whatever you do and for finding a way to be here with us tonight. I also want to in particular, though, thank uh, Pez and Annie Oak for putting this together. They're incredible people. And they've empowered a lot of people. And they've helped change my life. So I want to thank them and uh, understand how complicated it is to get all this together and all the work that people surrender of their free time. It's quite astonishing that we're all here. So I want to try an experiment tonight. I saw a lecture a long time ago with a guy named Buckminster Fuller who designed all these domes that we're all enjoying. And he told this interesting story about being blind as a kid and that he didn't, he didn't see people's eyes until he was, had already been declared retarded and uneducable and nobody knew that he, could, he was blind. And when he finally got glasses, he saw people's eyes for the first time and he started just staring at people's eyes as a way to communicate and understand what they wanted to hear. So he explained that in this lecture he was giving, his technique was to walk on stage with a pile of three-by-five cards with ideas on them and start talking about these different ideas and watch people's eyes. And when they began to stray and get nervous or look at the girl next to them or look at their phone and things like this, there weren't phones then to look at, uh, he would pull another card out and make a transition to whatever was next. And I was thinking that's a lot like psychedelics in the sense that one of the characteristics of the psychedelic experience can be that you can jump from any one position in reality to some other position in reality in one single step. Suddenly the picture changes, as some of the ayahuasca arrows say. So I think it's an interesting way to try to approach um, public speaking and also a way to engage the audience in a different way. And create a type of ceremonial performance that uh, can lead us in directions we wouldn't ordinarily go. So I hope you guys will uh, um, enjoy this experiment and uh, I think I'll get started. This movie that's going to run in the background here is just like a theatrical ploy. It's to help you gaze off behind me and let your subconscious hear what I'm saying and get as tripped out as you can. Okay, so I told my Buckminster Fuller story, but there's another story that's about Timothy Leary and a, speak, a speaker that I deeply admired and loved and also helped save me from my own personal apocalypse more than once. So I was fortunate to see him perform his first performance when he got out of prison. And he came to the University of Texas and they booked this huge ballroom and it was like overflowed by three times our capacity and they had to put it into every room in the student union and it was this amazing revelation that this man had survived prison and came out with this incredibly effusive joy and strength and power and had accommodated all the demands put on him by prison and came out a more beautiful and more hopeful human being and I was invited to a private lecture he gave and uh, when he came out, he told us he had done 750 mics of LSD and that he was going to experiment with these techno-shamanic 
modalities he had developed when he was in solitude in prison and being able to trip while he was in solitude for long periods of time. And he came out and he gave this amazing performance. He did things that I can't even tell you because they're absurd. And he performed all these tricks and caused visualizations in the whole crowd. And he talked about reversing his aging. He went through this incredible array of ideas that totally blew my mind. I just couldn't believe the uh, incredible strength of his vision. Timothy became a very tragic story in a lot of ways later. Perhaps he had more human pain than he could process because he had a very challenging life and he lost a lot of loved ones and he spent a lot of time in prison and he had police trying to fuck up his life for his whole time here. So there are a lot of reasons why a person can get a broken heart. A lot of reasons. But at that point in his life, he was the most powerful and most inspired human I've ever seen. And I want to invoke him and thank him for all the um, opportunities he's provided in my life. Those, I've got these two speak, public speaking lessons that uh, I remembered this afternoon and I wrote down and thought about this experiment and trying to do this lecture in some new way, not a lecture, a talk that I hope will engage you guys. And if you have any questions or remarks you want to make, please let me know. Psychedelics are beautiful, mysterious, and frightening. Therefore, they're very sexy. They're also forbidden. That makes them twice as sexy. So, in my mind, the rhetoric of psychedelia has this entire range from maps and the scientific research and spiritual research, indigenous traditions, the trickster tradition, I'm personally devoted to a model of divinity that's based on androgyny and the trickster um, archetype. I think that the world is full of surprises and full of chaos and full of uh, accidents that provide all sorts of amazing opportunities for us. So um, besides being uh, forbidden, sexy, frightening, they're really fun. They're really engaging and incredible. They can keep you young. I'm 185 years old, for real. <laughs> and I'm enjoying life. So stay with it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> earlier tonight, Annie Oak gave an incredible talk in here on sexuality and psychedelics that was just mind-blowing. And she told this incredible story of uh, being on an ayahuasca journey and having this very intense um, erotic uh, experience with a jaguar. And I, like, blew my mind because I had a... Uh, um, very erotic experience with a jaguar on ayahuasca. So I'm going to tell you that story next. <laughs> so um, I do this really intense ayahuasca um, session, and it lasts like 24 hours, and I'm like amnesic for at least six of those hours and vomited at least 300 times. I mean, I was praying that I could vomit some more, and I got buried into the earth, and it was just the most soul-devastating day of my life. It was really, really hard. And when I got finally dropped off at home, I told my friend, that's the last time. I'm not even interested uh, to try to put myself through this again. I mean, I, yeah, I learned a lot, and I got healed massively, and 
but I kept thinking I just couldn't do that again. One of the things that happened just for color was I can remember being in this dark green universe with swirling 3D fractals and there were these hieroglyphic light beings that didn't have bodies but they had light, sort of like our LED lighting, very similar to it. And these six beings were working on me and they were pulling out lumps in my broken heart and they were smoothing out these areas in my solar plexus that were full of the toxicity of burying my pain in my body. So they were working hard and they were trying to get me into a position to live a little longer and be a little happier. Other than that, it was pretty rough and it was uh, a lot of uh, just enduring in faith. And at the end of it, I was like, that's enough faith. I can't go through this again and my friend drops me off and I go inside I start drawing a warm bath and I take a little one hitter and take two hits of marijuana and I felt this toxicity just flood from my body and I just rolled back and started laughing and was in this state of incredible bliss I could hardly just keep my body together and I stumbled into the bedroom and uh, fell into the bed And I immediately had this complete 3D uh, Jaguar experience that looked sort of like a Japanese print, but in 3D and alive. And I knew this Jaguar in my face was a lady Jaguar. (laughs) And uh, I was wondering, oh, what's next? And it started tearing my body apart and just ripping my flesh with its claws and just eating me alive. And I was just in this incredible ecstasy. I was like, oh, please, take it. Please, take it. And it started ripping through my light body, and it ripped across my chakras, and just was totally dismembering me. And I was just like, oh, God, please. And then when it got to my heart, it transformed into this emerald-eyed snake goddess. (laughs) And she said, good job. You did the hard work. Uh, Now's for the soft part. Come on inside. And I had the most erotically charged, uh, let's call it undescribable experience of my life, at the end of which I fell asleep and slept for 16 hours and woke up with my eyes this big and uh, feeling rejuvenated in a way that uh, is priceless. So I want to thank Pachamama again and for all the visitations and uh, for the Jaguar sex healing that I got. I think it's really important that we start talking about sexuality and psychedelics. I'm actually kind of confused why we don't talk about it a lot, because it's it's frankly just fucking amazing. And it's there for us. Anyone that has a lover and likes psychedelics, it's there for you to jump on in and try. I'm sure a bunch of these people in this room have done that. Why do you need a lover? Well, yeah, exactly. Precisely. Thank you, sweetheart. You're right. So, uh, yeah, it's about love and pleasure and joy and, you know, tinkering around in those forbidden zones. And uh, it's like body work. I wonder why people don't do more body work while they're tripping. And I just talked to a beautiful young man that's doing yoga and psychedelics classes and workshops. So I think almost everything in the spiritual tradition just works better with psychedelics they're all great but I think psychedelics augment this in a way that's you just can't ignore it Terrence McKenna used to say going to the grave without having psychedelic experience would be like going to the grave without having had sex I completely agree it's hard for me to understand 
that people don't reach out for this forbidden fruit and uh, get all this uh, joy and adventure out of it. I'm pretty sure it's for fear. So part of what I advocate is that we uh, that we be beautiful and enticing and seductive and uh, entice people into doing something that can change their lives in a really beautiful way. So that's one of my missions in life. <laughs> I believe it's all about service. And when you do a lot of psychedelics, especially ayahuasca, because, you know, you end up, cleaning up the vomit and shit of your friends you know and there's nothing like that for uh, you know humility and learning this incredible vulnerability that allows for an unconditional love to surge forward whenever you get the opportunity so psychedelics have been essential in opening my heart to be this gigantic empathic machine love I love everybody it's hilarious to me because I grew up in a very, I didn't grow up in a world where I loved everybody, let me just say that casually. And it's it's been amazing to look back over the last like 10 years and see how different it is for me to be myself than it was even 10 years ago, much less 30 years ago. So I want to thank all these psychedelic spirit beings that have helped me along the way, more of my ancestor spirits. The biggest thing that I've discovered in the last few years, though, is that um, community is really, really a precious thing to have if you're going to be in the psychedelic world and bite off a big hunk of it and try to get deep into it. Find your friends, encourage them, you know, honor them, and, and do what you need to do to remain in integrity even after you fuck up and when people go through divorces and people uh, you know, move when they shouldn't move and leave you dealing with something they started. All of that's part of life, but it's very important that we just learn to forgive everybody, for Christ's sakes. Can you imagine we're human beings? We have a lot to live through. Here's a story I didn't expect to tell, but I worked for the uh, Bush family for a year and a half once <laughs> in a very bizarre position where I kind of got bought like a field hand and thrown into a company they owned doing uh, um, educational software development. And I was just, oh my God, I was just mortified at when I first heard, but almost instantly this opportunity presented itself in my mind and my heart that, oh my God, I'm going to be near these crazy fanatic, uh, you know, kleptocracy people that have like raised generations of people to steal from the government and are willing to do just about anything to stay in that position. And so I went into this job and with this open heart that I wanted to touch this guy that was one of the, the family. And it was an incredible lesson. I learned this incredible sense of humility that those people are very sad they're very lonely they don't have what we have we can i can get up and hug anybody in this audience and probably kiss a bunch of you and everybody will just think it's completely normal these people don't even have friends when your daddy's the president or the head of the cia you don't even have friends literally and i found myself in this position of like trying to honor this guy that I knew was well I won't go into it but there was a lot of shady stuff going on and by the time I left there I'd become this guy's advisor and um, learned a lot of secrets that I wish I didn't know and uh, 
saw him cry next to me and asked me for advice and I got invited to do all this stuff that I couldn't imagine in a million years I one day he the my boss Neil Bush called me up and said do you know who Benazar Bhutto is and she's the first woman elected to be a prime minister of a Muslim country and was the head of this really powerful political family in Pakistan and I made a movie once called Imaginary Muslims so I knew a lot about her and I knew who she was and he says do you know who this woman is and I said yeah and he goes well come downstairs you're gonna you're gonna be my wingman today and every time she starts kicking my ass I'm gonna go take a phone call you're gonna be with her all day long and I'm like really so I spent this whole day with this world leader cracking jokes drinking a lot of coffee and he'd run in and be an asshole for a few minutes and run back out. And I'm thinking, is this really how it works? You know, the world leaders kind of get together and kind of bitch at each other and try to make things happen. And in a weird way, it was very reassuring because I no longer believed that they were a bunch of evil geniuses. They're like a bunch of evil frat boys. They're not, they're not very smart. They're very sad. They're always in a reactionary position trying to save whatever they've stolen and not get knifed in the back by somebody that they fucked over along the way. They're not worried about us. I can assure you those people are not worried about us. They think we're harmless. They think that we're just partying. So I lost a lot of fear. I lost a lot of sense of potential conspiracies and all this stuff that are inevitably valid but I just don't need to worry about them and I found that by loving these guys it enriched my life and also I'm sure that I I had an impact on things I actually it's it's hard to believe some of the things that happen so almost any situation you can be dropped into you can find the love and the divine spirit in somebody and if you can make them laugh and listen to their stories about whatever makes them sad they're human beings, and they're not in charge. Just please forget about it. The world is waiting on us, not on them. This is not the past out here. This is the future. This is the development platform for how we're going to survive this insane situation we've gotten into. So that'll lead me to a story from when I was uh, seven years old. I get a phone call. I'm in seventh grade, not seven years old. I get a phone call in the middle of the summer in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's too fucking hot to do anything. And my buddy David Jones says, hey, my brother just bought the Jimi Hendrix Experience album. Nobody had heard it yet, so I ran down the street, threw on the headphones, and when I got through, I knew what psychedelics were, and I knew I wanted it. And so I feel like I'm in that tradition. I really believe that we're here to help each other have the courage and the opportunity to explore these realms and to go into this spiritual growth and artistic growth, psychological growth, emotional healing that's available for every person on this planet if we would just grow up and quit having wars and quit stealing from each other. We need to just simply learn to share, care for each other, and be present with that. We're going to have to do it. We don't have many choices. We're running out of that clock. So that was my first psychedelic experience, was listening to Jimi Hendrix. And it also awoken in me this realization that media could be this incredible, powerful 
transforming uh, experience and we take it a lot for granted but we've grown up in a really amazing era we've in my lifetime i was my family was the first family in my neighborhood to own a tv you know how many of you people can even imagine when you're on your cell phones and on the internet and doing all the beautiful, wonderful things that digital technology will let us do and some of the awful things it lets us do? That's a long way to come in one lifetime. And when I was talking to my mom as she's passing and beginning to go through her past, she talked about living in a time without electricity. There weren't any lights. There wasn't any plumbing that was electrically assisted, like pumps, electric pumps and stuff. It was a much different world not very long ago. It's changing very, very fast. So now I'm going to jump to a 12-year-old, Ken Adams, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy is on the TV. The family's huddled around, and he's talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and basically tells everybody to prepare for the possibility of a atomic war and afterwards my father kindly explained to me that if there's a and there really is an atomic war everything you know and love and care about will be obliterated and it's probably not a world you'd want to live in i was actually i was nine years old it's 1962 october 22nd and during that evening i became an adult I realized that the adults in my own civilization were insane enough to create weapons that could destroy the whole fabric of civilization and that they were stockpiling weapons to create havoc that couldn't be undone. So I think at that evening a whole rescue cohort was awakened and somewhat I think the 60s were a direct response to this that we saw that our parents were crazy. All they can think about is money and power, and then later they take care of love and you know, loyalty to their family and a lot of other good things, baseball and apple pie. But in the meantime, they're letting these insane people set the world up for catastrophe. And so I, in a sense, traded my childhood for this realization that it was going to take solutions that weren't coming from the adults. And along the way developing like so many of the others of my generation I inevitably ran into psychedelics and I was astonished the very first time I did them that this was something of a hidden secret that we had these amazing tools available to us and very few people were using them and that it might be a very good idea that we uh, promote this idea and sure enough there was a lot of that happened in the 60s a lot of people altered their consciousness and a lot of people got in trouble. A lot of people died. A lot of people went to jail. A lot of people had broken families. There was a lot of damage. But there was an awakening in this culture that was as big as any kind of spiritual revival the world's ever seen and possibly larger and deeper than anything that's ever been seen in such a short amount of time. So I've been looking at this thing from that point of view my entire life. Luckily, along the way, I went camping with a really beautiful girl that uh, had mushrooms and taught me that there was a lot more to do with psychedelics than worry about how to save the world. And it opened up this other world to me of sexuality and tenderness and 
eventually the ability to go to other worlds, to go to other realms with my lover and to see that we don't only exist in this human form, we all exist in other realms and other entities are there that can help us and serve us or entertain us and play with us give us joy, give us healing and pleasure where we currently have a lot of uh, frustration and anxiety. Alex Gray. Have any of you ever heard of Alex Gray? (laughs) So uh, Alex wrote a really important book called, I don't know what it's called, but it's on the art as a spiritual path. I forget what he calls it. But he talks about how art has become the secret mystery tradition of the western civilization that we've been able to figure out this way to express ourselves with incredible emotional impact and reveal through the hologram of a single individual artist that's put his life, devoted his life to creativity can manifest a model of the universe that simply otherwise wouldn't exist so I want to pay homage to Alex. I, uh, I think he's done an amazing thing in the world. People are starting their first trips with all these images that Alex made and that they've studied when they went to the bookstore and looked at his books and wondered what tripping's like. And people that have been tripping for years see something in his painting and start crying. I mean, it's, he's made an amazing body of art and he's encouraged thousands of artists to take it very seriously and make beautiful work and now there's this whole other generation of psychedelic painters that are just blowing our minds and creating this incredible opportunity to share what the psychedelic experience is is, and what it's about it's my hope to do that as an artist in these other realms these other mediums that I work in so I want to pay homage to that ancestor Another ancestor is Francis Bacon, and I just read a quote from Francis Bacon's kind of considered the guy that established the groundwork for developing the scientific method and deductive reasoning and resisting the church at a time when they were trying to stomp out enlightened and progressive thinking. And I ran into this really interesting quote just a couple of weeks ago where he said uh, that due to the repression that we're under from the authorities, he suggested that people make enigmatic histories of what's going on in their lives and then to use all the tricks of theater to disguise and hide what they were, the knowledge they were trying to convey. And the last thing he said was, those that know will know, the others won't care. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of safety in being an artist. They think you're an idiot or a fool or just at least an entertaining you know trickster on the uh, court staff and yeah you're all that but you also have the chance to create worlds that enrich in this shared experience that we have and give us new solutions for all these problems and catastrophes that we worry about we're in that state of mind but also lead us to all these incredible adventures of beauty and mystery over and over again I think of beauty and mystery or what we should be seeking or what I'm interested in seeking and what I'm interested in conveying and um, presenting in my art world. Oh, this is a good one. In high school in Shreveport, Louisiana during the height of the insanity and the beginning of the drug war, for some reason our principal had the great idea to hire a freelance fundamentalist preacher to come and talk to us about drugs. It was a mandatory... uh, 
meeting in the school theater and this guy gets up on stage and he starts talking about psychedelic sex parties and the danger of smoking marijuana and you're going to end up in a psychedelic sex party and I could see all these like horny teenagers were just like oh yeah where do I get some of that psychedelic sex party stuff and I, I thought wow I want to grow up and be that guy you know he's promoting psychedelic sex parties for a living what a great job <laughs> So that leads me to this final maybe conclusion is that we should consider that the unintended consequences of our world are the most interesting and the most beautiful and mysterious because the world is not done. We don't have any obligation to succeed here as a species. We could disappear, be gone, and life is going to be moving along. The plasma will keep churning out new civilizations and different things will happen all over the universe. So we have a limited time here to to come to grips with it all and uh, embrace this opportunity. And uh, now that I've said mystery and beauty about 17 times, I want to remind everybody, oh, a beautiful woman sent me this book today from Austin Rumi, The Book of Love. Thank you, Jenna. So I opened it up at random to grab a verse, and uh, this is what I got. I open and I fill with love, and what is not love evaporates. And if there's anything psychedelics can do, given the intention, given the community, given the healthy living, living with integrity, dealing with your heart more than your head, you live from your heart instead of your ideas, it'll eventually evaporate everything that's not love. And beyond beauty and mystery, there's really only one word that we have that's really big enough to contain all of this, and that's love. It's the simplest thing, and everybody said it from the beginning of time. But if we learn to love one another and take responsibility from one another, we're going to have incredible experiences. We can go to the temple and comfort some incredible stranger that's letting loose some intense emotional turmoil and turning around looking for anybody and making eye contact with you and you can embrace them and love them and kiss their heads and squeeze their bodies and eventually put them on their way and never see them again that I think is the single most exquisite invention of the Burning Man community we have invented a way to grieve that no other civilization has ever had we found ourselves in this bankrupt culture that has destroyed all these rituals there. We could learn to both grieve and celebrate. We've reinvented our celebrations, but we also gave ourselves this incredible healing capacity to share this temple experience, sit in near silence with 60,000 people that are devoting themselves to some reverence for the passing of life. It's very, very important that we live with our deaths. We're all going to be dead very soon. Everybody in this room will be dead very quickly. It, it just flashes by. You lose people. New people are born. So live fully, my sweet friends, my beloveds. Live as fully as you can. Drink as deep as you can. Love extra. Love, forgive. Love some more. Don't worry about who's fucking up. We're all fucking up. We're all broken children that need love. We need it in extra doses. So go out into the playa and love some strangers. 
I hope you come see my movie, and I thank you all for being here, and I love you all. <laughs> Blessings. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? I'll make some up if you don't. <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> so, seriously, does anybody have any comments? I actually I consider myself a techno animist. I I regard everything as being animated with life spirit and at least implicit consciousness. The first time I got a computer, I wrote a grant. I was a like sculpture found object sculpture guy. I never made a video in my life. I wrote a grant to the National Endowment of the Arts to try to sneak some money out and buy a computer and somehow got it. So I bought the first computer that you could make video and audio with an Amiga computer and there's another Amiga guy over here. <laughs> and man, was that a revelation, you know. There was really, seriously, this other world opened up. But the very first chance I got, I was on a sixth floor walk up in Manhattan and I took this heroic dose of mushrooms because I wanted to go in my computer like in Tron and, you know, find out what's in there from the psychedelic <laughs> point of view. And to my surprise, they were there waiting. They were like, yeah, right, we're here to help. We're like crystals. We're from the earth. We're like those crystals you wear on your necklaces. And we really have something to add to this. And you're in a crisis. So we're going to give you a way to get everybody on the same page in a very short amount of time. We call it the internet. We call it fucking Facebook for a while. <laughs> but for another, another period will emerge where this new humanity is growing that's never been possible before where we, sh we have shared experiences that the entire world knows about, like 9-11 and all the catastrophes in Japan and Haiti and all over the world, the Gulf. We're being introduced to a level of experience that's post-tribal, post-national, where we're all sharing the same emotional experiences and beginning to develop the persona of a new human being, a human being that's never been here before. It's something that's completely unique in human history. So I think of my computer as an ally, the way people think about their animal totems or their plant spirit allies. I go to my computer and I never tell it what to do. I always ask it, what do you want to show me? What do you want to show me I've never done before? Show me something I can't expect, something I can't anticipate. And it never fails me. It always surprises me. When I go back and look at my movies, I can't remember how I made all these different parts of these movies. I would have no idea how to go through the re-engineering of trying to contrive these things because I work from a state of basically surrender to my computer. I think I'm making love to my computer when I play with it. <laughs> and it's certainly making a sort of love to me. So I know that the NSA is snooping into our stuff. I'm surprised anyone's surprised at that. I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't. They're control freaks. So I try to watch the cultural mood and stay within limits. I see people talking about ayahuasca on TV and on different magazines and bookstores are full of this stuff. So I don't think they're really worried about what I think. I don't think they're too interested in finding out that I like to do psychedelics. That's like saying there's a, a black dude in Brooklyn that sells pot. Well, that's not very useful information. There are a lot of people selling pot in Brooklyn. There are a lot of people doing psychedelics. 
there are a lot of people that have devoted their lives to get us here and give us this opportunity to share in this new culture that we're building. So yeah, I think the convergence of computers and psychedelics is an essential part of us making this transition we're going to be that we are making and that without it we'd be you know calling up on the telephone and leaving a message. Can you imagine that that's the best we could do for a long time? Now I can, this video will go out on Palenque Norte and thousands, maybe millions of people will be able to watch it. It's just going to just keep running. It doesn't stop, you know. It's always there. The little elves are working even when we sleep. So, yeah, I really have welcomed the computer uh, revolution. I think it's giving us an opportunity to also make a visual language of which I'm constantly experimenting with that will be universal so that we're no longer tied to linguistic groups that channel our thinking into different categories. You can show people and illustrate people to people these states of consciousness, these implications of what it's like to know that you have a soul, that you have a spirit, that you have a heart. All these implications are being mapped out incredibly beautifully with amazing nuance on the internet where we're all spending too much time. I have a necklace on here that's about unplugging. I love the internet, I love my computer, but I love unplugging. I love laying naked on the rocks in a, in a mountain looking over a, a landscape that's too beautiful to even comprehend. So I'm not like, uh, even though I have a bunch of repetitive stress issues from being on my computer too much, it's the price I see that I've paid to be in love so deeply and to be given such an incredible gift of really power to be able to use computers to make psychedelic art. You're in a very select group of people in human history. It's a very thin slice, an incredible privilege. So yeah, I love computers. <laughs> I love working with them and I also would love to not ever have to hold a mouse again and sit at a desk like this, you know, trying to get it to be in the right places. It's a very kludgy beginning, but we'll be out of it very soon. It'll go moving very quickly to much more elegant solutions. Any more? Synthetics? I think there are differences, sure. You know, there's obviously differences, but I've used a wide array of psychedelics and I respect them all and I again I think LSD is a crystal and so it's a mineral sort of persona and it's different than a plant persona to me all the plant um, psychedelics have been feminine I should tell a quick DMT story here guys if you get a chance <laughs> if you haven't already DMT especially organically derived DMT with no petrochemicals that are extracted with orange juice from the proper plants and then precipitated onto passion flowers. Those plant spirits are very sexy and they're very powerful and they're very friendly and they're really looking forward to meeting as many human spirit beings as they can. So when I do DMD these days, I pretty consistently run into these very beautiful um, manifestations of, let's call them fairy spirits, not in the Disney sense, but in the sense of nature spirits from our own Celtic tradition that are full of magic and full of love and full of sexiness again. So uh, 
I think that's where we're going next. I think we're going to quit telling each other these wild and crazy, not quit, but we're going to put in to the, the uh, archive a lot, new, a lot of new stories about engaging other beings in these other realms that if you're willing to open up your neurological system and invite them in the way they've invited you into their, themselves, new worlds are created that have never been done before that are not human. And you can go there and be in these incredible, extraordinary places that no one's been able to describe yet, no one's been able to make movies about yet, but that are incredibly beautiful and mysterious. <laughs> and they are packed with love. There was another... you want to ask? That's right. The question or the comment is, instead of the second coming of Christ, it's the second coming of Pan. Yes, that's exactly right. We're going to be wilder. We're going to be closer to nature. We're going to fuck a lot more and a lot better than people used to in our culture. We already do. So, yeah, that's part of the progress here. What was your comment? Do I believe it is? Absolutely. It's a key. I, I'm not into absolutes. I tried. William Burroughs was another honored uh, ancestor and he talked a lot about not using the article the because it's so singular. I think there are a lot of paths that are going to be really crucial and keys to the future but certainly in my life um, psychedelics have been key to everything that I hold dear from raising my children to touching my private parts to writing novels and making movies. It's it's been essential to my life. I can't even begin to imagine suggesting where do we go next unless I bring that into the question. We need to consider the value of psychedelics. We just need to get on with it. And we need, I'm 60 years old, not 134, and I've raised beautiful children, Zephan and Zarina. I love you, you blessed beings. I've paid my taxes. I had jobs. <laughs> I drive a car if I have to. I'm an American citizen, and I'm tired of these creeps standing on my neck. And I think it's important for people to speak up and have the courage to say their own truth. Bring it out. Offer it up. Serve your time, not just your people, your time. The time you have is that special opportunity. We're all in a very unique place in our own holograms. It's not where it was in 1960. It's not where it's going to be in 2050. It's right now, right here on the playa, right where we are in all of our lives and all of our little melodramas and that hologram of weird meanings we call our lives that nobody else really knows about. We all think everyone knows us and we knows our story. Not too much. Basically about 99% of it you're doing on your own, kind of generating your own imagination and making it as real as you need to to keep functional. But other than that, yeah, I mean psychedelics they're essential for me and for all the people that are dearest to me and that have loved me the most and shown me the most spiritually and constantly reminding me that I have a soul and to not take myself too seriously because it'll be over soon you're gonna all be dead soon all the people you love will be dead soon it's not the end of the story nothing ever ends nothing ever ever ends Every thought you have and every kindness you bring to the world changes the world. Every little piece of it. Thank you very much. Go have a great night. 
You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Although I didn't plan it this way, I find it quite interesting that uh, Ken just now ended his talk saying, in his own way, well, essentially the same thing with which I ended last week's podcast. Remember the uh, quote I used? Almost everything you do will seem insignificant, but it is important that you do it. It's a small thing, but I've found that it is sometimes worthwhile to pay attention to these little coincidences. Unfortunately for you, however, uh, (laughs) what all this brought back to my mind is uh, an unlikely chain of hyperlinks in which I recalled another instance of two people saying, well, essentially the same thing, but in their own unique ways. You see, uh, I've learned that some people are more receptive of the opinions of those who have impeccable scholarly credentials, and others of us react better to a vibe that is, uh, well, closer to the street. Thus the uh, little story I'm going to tell you right now. As Ken just mentioned, there are a lot of people selling pot and doing psychedelics. It's just that in our current culture, they all have to keep under the radar of the power elite. One of the first encounters that I ever had with someone who very few people would suspect of using LSD on a regular basis was when I met Dr. A.C. German, who was Professor Emeritus in the Department of Criminal Justice at Cal State in Long Beach. In fact, he is actually responsible for founding the police science program at that university, and it remains one of the premier educational programs uh, today for advanced degrees in police work. Well, it was at the All Chemical Arts Conference in Hawaii that I first met Dr. Jaman and his lovely wife. They were both there, and I think they were probably in their late 70s at the time, and compared to the rest of the attendees at the conference, they were by far the most sedate ones there. You know, just a retired university professor and his wife. But Dr. Jaman was there on a mission, and his mission was to let us younger generations know how important he believed the proper use of LSD was. When we parted, he gave me a short essay that he wrote about this subject, and he asked me to post it on my website. And uh, it's been on uh, my Matrix Master site for over a decade now, and I'll post a link to it uh, along with the program notes for this podcast so you can read the entire essay yourself. Uh, I think it would be really worth your time to do so. But in just a moment, I'm going to read a single paragraph from this essay and then contrast it with a very brief soundbite from a TP Boys episode. For those of you uh, who aren't familiar with the Trailer Park Boys, uh, well, all you need to know for the soundbite to make sense is that the person doing most of the talking is a character named Ricky. There really is no way to briefly explain Ricky, uh, other than if you were the father of a daughter who wanted to date him, Well, you'd probably move your entire family out of the country just to keep her away from him. (laughs) Essentially, he is the most uh, anti-authoritarian character I've come across. And uh, by the way, I think he's great. (laughs) He's uh, he's just one of those people you'd love to be somewhat like, but uh, you couldn't stand to be around him. I realize that this is probably getting confusing by now, but our fellow saloners who are also TP Boys fans understand perfectly, I suspect. So, uh, what's your point, Lorenzo, you ask? Well, my roundabout point is that uh, Dr. Jaman and Ricky represent two opposite polarities of the so-called civilized human male, and yet they equally understand something very basic about our society that most people choose to ignore. Now, first, here is uh, Dr. Jaman's thought, and I quote, 
If the ears of all the people in the nation who had ingested illicit substances in the past six months were to turn bright green for one whole week, the nation would be amazed, confused, astounded, and quickly taught something very important as they identified friends, relatives, neighbors, doctors, lawyers, accountants, priests, nuns, ministers, rabbis, soldiers, policemen, firemen, military personnel, businessmen, teachers, students, politicians, respected policymakers, administrators, supervisors, and workers from a variety of private and government institutions everywhere. End quote. And that's the quote from a very highly respected university professor. And now, here is a similar thought from Ricky as he puts one of his dupes to work on a particularly nasty project. There's a little piece of hash. Go to the stove. Do some hot knives. Get stoned and get the fuck to work. Okay? I can't get stoned, Ricky. What do you mean? It's shitty work. Everybody does that, all right? Carpenters, electricians, dishwashers, floor cleaners, lawyers, doctors, fucking politicians, CBC employees, principals, people that paint the lines on the fucking roads. Get stoned. It'll be fun. Get to work. After that, I probably should follow Ricky's advice, get stoned, and go to work on my next podcast. But first, I've got one more story to tell you. It uh, concerns one of my favorite podcasts, Lefty's Lounge which you can find over on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk. Well, Lefty's Lounge is one of my favorite podcasts, and I've listened to every one of them. And in case you've never tuned in to Lefty, uh, well, what his program consists of is primarily music, and uh, most of it's old and new rock. But Lefty also inserts uh, short comedy bits as well as his own fascinating chatter. And, uh, by the way, Lefty is uh, one of those great old-school DJs who actually takes the time to give you the name of the artists and the songs after each set he plays. Plus, uh, you can also see the listing in his program notes. And uh, since much of the music that he plays is new stuff that I'm not familiar with, well, this is a big help for me when I want to go back and buy one of the songs I've heard. Now, Lefty doesn't play many of what uh, are called the oldies. His musical taste is more in line with the uh, 20 and 30 year old crowd. But once in a while he'll play an old rock standard that I can sing along to. However, only once that I know of has he dipped way back, but with a modern version of a really old song. Now, you're going to have to bear with me here while I tell one of my grandfather stories that uh, right now my grandkids are too young to hear, and uh, hopefully someone will point them to the salon when they're in their 30s and they can uh, hear some of these stories that uh, I'm inserting here and there for them. And in the event you aren't up for one of my silly stories, well, you can just skip ahead to the last 10 minutes of this podcast where a real treat awakes you. Are you comfortable? It's a long one. Well, when I was in college, every other Tuesday night, all of the engineering students had to take a two-hour physics exam. We called it Black Tuesday. And after the test ended one night and my roommate and I attempted to leave the building by the front door, we couldn't push it open due to the uh, blizzard conditions and high wind keeping it closed. So my roommate and I decided to leave by the back door. But next to the door was a little bulletin board, and on it was a hand-drawn flyer with a very poor representation of a palm tree and the title, Learn to Sail, Free. Well, as we uh, fought our way back to the dorm that night through the snowstorm, all we could talk about was palm trees and sailboats. Now, uh, jump forward in time several years, and uh, I'm now a senior in college and the captain of the sailing team. 
Well, each Thanksgiving, the uh, Chicago Yacht Club hosted a regatta that week for the Midwest Collegiate Sailing Association, the MCSA. At the time, uh, my parents lived on the outskirts of Chicago, and so the sailing team would spend the Thanksgiving holidays camped out at my parents' house, and our girlfriends stayed a block away at my aunt's house. Then uh, we'd go into the city to race during the day, and at night we'd uh, gather around the piano in my parents' house where my mother would play, and we'd all sing until late at night. And those times around the piano with my mother playing and all of us, uh, quite drunk I should add, (laughs) singing our hearts out are by far the most wonderful memories of all my college days. So what's the point, you ask? Well, first of all, that little detour out the back door of the engineering building one Black Tuesday quite literally changed my life. For many years after that night, sailing became the dominant focus and influence in my life. So uh, pay attention to those little things. The little coincidences that you pay attention to can sometimes be life-changing. But the other point is that sometimes, without even knowing it, you can say or do something that becomes quite meaningful in an emotional way for others who you may not even know. And that's what Lefty did for me in his podcast number 178. Because he played a song in that show that I hadn't heard in many years. In fact, the very last time I'd heard it uh, before that podcast was the last night of our last party with my parents and the Notre Dame sailing team, and my mother was playing it on the piano. I won't tell you what the song was, but if you listen to that podcast, I'm sure that you'll figure it out. So, Lefty, thanks for restoring a lost memory for me. Now, uh, one more thing about Lefty's Lounge. He also plays a lot of comedy, but in only very short bits, usually. So I'm always going out to YouTube to listen to more from uh, the great comedians that he features on his program. His most recent program, number 180, is a double album, so to speak, in that he did a two-hour show and included both some new and some old comedy, like the uh, hilarious Joe Rogan bit about the San Francisco Tiger episode. And at the very end of this program, Lefty played a bit in its entirety that he's only played parts of before. But this is the first time I remember hearing the entire bit all at one time. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard bits and pieces of this story before, but every time I hear it, I laugh out loud. And uh, that's not often the case when you've heard a story before. In fact, this story is so good that I'm afraid some of our fellow slaughters won't take the time to listen to it on Lefty's podcast. If I could have found it on YouTube or some other place, I would have linked to it, but the only place I've been able to find it so far is from Lefty. And so I'm going to take advantage of Lefty's good nature and play it for you here, just to be sure that you hear it. But it sure would be cool of you to also jack into Lefty's Lounge over at dopefiend.co.uk, where you know I'll also be hanging out each week. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And now, here is the late Ron Schock telling the best goddamn dope story you've ever heard. I'm going to tell you the world's greatest dope story. Happened in Australia. The dope is marijuana. Now, this story is not a pro-marijuana story. I'm not saying that in any way, okay? Matter of fact, if you are anti-marijuana, this story will probably make you more anti-marijuana. You'll go, no, goddamn, that really is terrible shit. Nobody should ever do it, okay? If you are pro-marijuana, the story will probably make you even more pro-marijuana. But either one, 
figure why at the end of the story you're going to go that's the best goddamn story I've ever heard okay this happens in 1961 1971 I lived in Australia at this time and I'm running British printing over there and I'm making so much money that I get into rock music promotion and uh, between 69 and 71 I bring blood sweat and tears to Australia I brought Black Sabbath back when Ozzy Osbourne was their lead singer I brought the cakes right up they did Lola and, and uh, uh, you know I know it's going to come as a surprise but a lot of the rock and roll people of the late 60s and early 70s smoked marijuana and I know I know I know I know I know know. the president one didn't bother you I know but it's true and uh, in Australia in 1971 marijuana was illegal however anything a half a pound and under was considered to be for personal consumption and therefore exempt from the law. Heaven, I'm in heaven. Well, we get some good dope from all over the world, man, coming through that Sydney Harbor. We get it from Africa and Asia and Philippines and Southeast Asia. My best friend gets married best friends in America and he marries a ballerina of the Sydney Royal Ballet Company and her mom and dad are so rich that they don't know how much money they've got their money goes back centuries okay and so the wedding of their daughter the ballerina of the Sydney Royal Ballet Company is quite a big deal okay I mean you know it'd be like Madonna getting married over here okay I mean you know you know I mean it gets that kind of press you understand what I'm saying and and I mean that wedding it is the social event of the season and uh, I'm the best man and my wife is the maid of honor and uh I'm straight. It's my best friend's wedding. I wouldn't fuck it up, okay? However, the story takes place at the reception. And the wedding is over. (laughs) And it's party time. And we're outside. And first got to set the scene. They have a mansion that overlooks Sydney Harbor. And, and, I mean, there's, like, the mayor of Sydney's is there, members of parliament, which would be, like, United States senators are there, members of the Supreme Court of Australia are there, uh, all these, you know, the ultra-rich are there, the press is there, the, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra string section is playing out on the veranda, okay? I mean, this is a big fucking deal, okay? And I got long hair and a Fu Manchu mustache, and I'm dressed up in a tuxedo, right? And we're outside taking pictures of each other because we're never dressed up, right? But for this big wedding, they know we're dressed up. And I'm straight. And as I'm standing there taking pictures, somebody hands me a marijuana cigarette. My first of the day, the story officially begins. <laughs> well, by the time I blow that smoke back out, I'm more stoned than I've ever been in my life. I mean, just immediately, man, the ground is starting to move like this, and people's faces are, you know, like whoa, man. So like any good doper, I said, whose dope is that? 
Where, where did that come from? Somebody down, at the, somebody down at the end goes, it's Mike's, the groom, my best friend. <laughs> so, like any good doper, I went off in search of Mike. Mike, buddy. That is some good shit you got, man. I goes, yeah, man. Doug and Sue gave me an ounce of this stuff. It's from Nepal. N-E-P-A-L. Nepal is a little country between India and China. It's where the Himalayan mountains are. And in Nepal, marijuana has been legal for over 6,000 years of recorded history. And for 6,000 years, those little Tibetan monks have been working on developing a strain of marijuana that they consider to be spiritual. <laughs> They're up there talking to God with this shit. And my friend, my best friend, has an ounce of it. So like any good dober, I said, Mike, God damn, buddy, this is your wedding night. You have married a beautiful, intelligent, artistic, rich woman who loves you. This is the greatest party that I have ever seen in my life. And you have, in your possession, certifiably the best dope in the whole world. Let's go get stunned. Mike goes, good idea. So I go off and get my wife, Kathy. And he goes off and gets his new wife, Dorothy. And he gets Doug and Sue, that's the two people that gave him the dope to start with, you know, fair is fair, okay? And uh, we slide out of the party. And, uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the, we go up their back, and, and their back of their estate is like terraced down to the edge of Sydney Harbor. And Sydney Harbor is very reminiscent of, of San Francisco Bay. It has got the bridge going across, and, you know, and it's, it's hilly, and, and, you know, so the city lights are, you know, up. And it's very beautiful from, you know, this level. And, and so the city's over here, and the party's going on up here, and six full-grown adult people who smoke a lot of dope at that time. We rolled one skinny little toothpick number of that Nepalese wig. Second hit of the number, my wife, in her formal dress, hits the ground. <laughs> Six of us have smoked this number 
we are all on the floor, okay, or on the ground. Now, when I'm in this position in the story, I have, I have collapsed underneath the tree, okay? I am propped up with a tree, all right? And when I say I am fucked up, okay, my face has melted off of my skull, okay? It has melted down to about right about here. So words are like coming out around my belly button, okay? But they're coming out like... <laughs> You know, the ground is going up and down like this. The tree is melting down on my head, and musical notes are floating out across the sky from the party up on the hill, okay? I mean, I am, I am fucked up, okay? And we are all like that. I mean, we are all on the ground. We are just this close to comatose, okay? And But we have managed to lay down with our feet coming together in a point. And the reason we are laying like this is when you're this fucked up, you've got to be within double arm's reach of one another. And if you expect that shit to get back around to you, you have got to lay with your feet coming together in a point. Mutual cooperation leads to mutual benefit, okay? When the money's gone, only your knowledge gets you through, okay? So there we are, ground going up and down, faces melting, voices coming out, notes floating out across the sky, and like any good doper, I said, suck, Dorothy. Why don't we roll up a number? That is some good shit. So we rolled the second number. Took us a month. Maybe a month and a half. Really slow time down, okay? We get the second number rolling. We start it around the, the circle. The second hit of the second number, Mike, my friend, is laying to the right of me, tries to get up. He goes, Ronnie! Oh, God damn, help me! Oh, God, Ronnie, help me! Oh, Jesus! Oh, God! And he falls face down in the middle of the circle. but so that all of you can see me, I'll just do it like this. And Mike's laying face down. I go, Mike? Mike? Which, of course, to me, sounds like... Mmm. And this isn't funny, man. Mmm. 
<laughs> My. And so I grab him and I roll him over. And his eyes are open, but they're rolled up inside of his head. And his mouth's open, his tongue's hanging out. <laughs> Most gruesome thing I've ever seen. I go, Mike. God damn, Mike. And so I slap him. Whack his head. Boom, like that. And I all. So I reach for the artery alongside his neck, and there is no pause, man, and I don't know what to do, so I lift up, and I hit him as hard as I can on the heart. Wham! His body jerked. And nothing, man. And so I start artificial. Nothing. Turned to Dorothy, his wife, of about four hours. And I go, Mike's dead. And Dorothy says, Oh, wow. What a bummer. So I lay back down, okay? know what to do and I'm too fucked up to do anything anyway so we're all just laying there looking at the body right and about this time Dorothy's mother comes out at the party up on the hill okay going Mike Dorothy it's time for your speeches Mike Dorothy we're going oh wow She sees us way down there. She's coming down. She says, is that you? Is that you? We're going, oh, wow. Is something wrong? Oh, my God. Oh, something's wrong. Oh, help. Help. Call the doctor. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And people start streaming out of this fucking party and running down the hill towards us. We're going, oh, wow. I mean, it's a posse, okay? I'm a foreigner in a foreign land and there is a dead man at my feet and I'm too fucked up to get away. Whatever's going to happen, I'm going to watch while melting underneath the tree, okay? Going, oh, wow. And Mike's dad, who has come all the way from the U.S., for his only son's wedding is the first one on the group he goes my son is dead of a drug overdose and I want these five people arrested for murder we're going oh and about this time a doctor pushes his way through he's got a stethoscope on and he shoves everybody and he leans over Mike and Mike sits up and he goes somebody want me to give a speech been there when Jesus rose Lazarus, I could not have been more surprised, okay? My heart's going boom, boom, and Mike stands up and walks up the hill and takes everybody with him, except the five of us, who are still laying underneath these trees going, oh, wow. 
And like any good doper, I said, hey, Dorothy, why don't we roll up another one? <laughs> 